Hi, this is Damien from New City, Orlando. You're listening to our CBR Bible Project series, where each episode we introduce a different book of the Bible as it coincides with CBR. To learn more about Community Bible Reading or CBR, visit newcityorlando.com forward slash CBR. Mike, it's good to be with you again for another podcast. Great to be back with you. So we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians today. So tell us what's going on. What's the background to this letter of Paul's? So Acts 18 describes Paul's ministry as an apostle and an evangelist uh, in building up a Christian community in Corinth. Corinth is a, a really global international city dominated by trade. It's therefore really religiously pluralist. And so it's not a small thing for Paul to go in and really sort of establish a beachhead kind of Christian community that over time as he leaves continues to grow. And this is one of several letters that he's going to write later to that community. So he knows them, or at least many of them and their leaders. Um, He helped establish it. Uh, And yet we see through this and through 2 Corinthians that, that follows it in the New Testament that a lot of problems either already have set in or are potentially about to set in. And Paul wants to offer a lot of pastoral advice. So it's it's written a few years after his time with them, we think probably around 55 AD. Um, and uh, it's, it's addressing a lot of varied concerns of, of what is sort of a growing Christian community in that kind of uh, tempting pluralist sort of environment that's tugging and pulling in all sorts of ways. And that's growing just enough that you start getting conflicts within too, and all sorts of problems that over time arise. Uh, Sort of what's the next word? What's kind of Paul's apostolic input version 2.0 maybe, you know? Uh, So that's something of what 1 Corinthians is. Yeah, what do you think uh, makes it so important for us today as readers? Yeah. I mean, it's remarkable in all sorts of ways. It's describing, uh, in parts, the very nature of the gospel, um, both at the end, famously in chapter 15, describing the importance of the resurrection and the basic story of Christ as delivered according to the scriptures. But even at the very beginning, in chapters 1 and 2, it it unpacks how the gospel is so counterintuitive and countercultural and, and that can be a particularly helpful word to frame the rest of the letter, reminding us this is a, a word for people who think they live in a churchy or Christian environment, but apparently it's really not as churchy or Christian as they might have thought. Uh, they're in a congregation that's, that's maybe grown. They're maybe in a denomination that's developed. Um, you know, there may be in a Christian enclave in a city or a community uh, that in all sorts of ways seems to have the trappings of churchianity, but it's really under threat in all sorts of ways. And a lot of the counterintuitive nature of the gospel has been sort of uh, toned down. And Paul is is really bringing out that kind of stark nature of, of what Jesus has done and the kind of new life that brings. Yeah. Well, well I, I think when I read 1 Corinthians to that point, and when many people read 1 Corinthians, it's quite scandalous. At, at times, what what could we say to Christians today who read First Corinthians and are shocked that Paul would call them saints? That yeah. that Paul would not bring into direct question their salvation, but rather call them to repentance as brothers and sisters for the most part. Yeah, uh, 
that's a timely question, I think, in all sorts of ways for us. I mean, the first thing to say is he calls them saints right off the bat. Um, but what's shocking to us is all the dirty laundry that gets aired. And it's interesting. I mean, he is candid. He's not holding back. He's not papering over. And it's worth saying that's standard for the New Testament. The New Mm. Testament, like the Old Testament before it, doesn't in any way tone down or pretend as if the failures of God's people don't exist. Mm. It's so candid. Uh, It's one of the elements we say that the message of the apostles must be true. Who would make this stuff up and say it about themselves, about Peter Mm. or others or here, the Corinthians? Um, and so there is a candid sense of describing the warts and failings and, and, and fault lines, but he never takes delight in that. And in mm. our cynical age, we probably ought to hear that. Mm. He describes it, but he describes it with sorrow, yeah. occasionally with anger, um, but mostly with deep lament, mm-hmm. uh, never with delight, never with entertainment value um, or fascination. Um and he describes it in a way that it personally involves him uh, as one who's drawn into it, not as it's an excuse for him not to examine himself. Mm-hmm. And, and we tend to think mm-hmm. about the screw-ups yeah. of others as a way of avoiding the searchlight coming on us, pointing it somewhere out there in the distance. And we tend to look at screw-ups in an entertaining or delightful way, not a lamentable sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul thinks the best of them. He calls them saints. He sees them in a sense as God does. Um, but he does see them also as, as God does, as those who are really struggling, who are really uh, sinners in need of salvation, sinners in need of grace every day. Um, and his word is the kind of word God has for sinners who need more grace each mm-hmm. and every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that challenges the way we think about viewing our ourselves and our yeah. Christian communities. Yeah. Is it your experience that there are unique ways that First Corinthians, because of its scandalous nature at times, um, are there ways that it continues to instruct us on the beauty and grace of God and the process nature, the goal and process nature of sanctification? Yeah, I mean, I think right off the bat, I'm so struck by the first two chapters that Christ is the wisdom of God um, and that the cross, the word of the cross is scandal. Mm. And it, it unpacks why that is in one way to Jews and another way to Greeks. It, it, it's an equal opportunity scandalizer. Mm-hmm. But underneath that, it's because Jews and Greeks alike are natural, not spiritual. And I think we could add moderns mm. and maybe modern Americans of this sort, uh, modern Westerners of that sort, modern fo- wherever we fit demographically, we too battle that natural inclination. And it's a natural inclination that sees the, the way of the cross as scandal, as not the way of life and goodness and truth and beauty, the way of prosperity, but as you know, the way of failure. Um, and some of us may identify with the Jewish worry about it, others with the Greek. Uh, but really... You know, those first two chapters uh, just prompt us to understand how challenging and at times how frustrating Jesus can be Mm. um, and how grace works, not just that we accept a solution to a problem we knew we had, but it also helps us understand the problem itself, Mm. that it's a problem internal to us, not just external. It's a problem of what we think we're made for, not just how we might get to it. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so the work of the spirit there in chapter two to, to change us within seems to me that's so important for us. Um, particularly when, you know, we're, we're pressured so much by voices outside that habituate us and, and, and shape us to want things that just run right up against the way of the cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder if this is your experience as I read through first Corinthians in light of the present context, right? We're in America and, um, we have experienced, a, a certain decade of political commentary and social reality. And so now of course that informs and shapes the way that I begin to see first Corinthians and Paul's teaching and the way that it, it, it confronts me and it confronts our culture. And I, I'm increasingly seeing that, uh, in my own heart and in our churches, there are times when we think that we're more mature than we actually are. And, uh, we need let, we need words like Paul's to speak very directly, uh, to our, the, the, the falseness of our perceived sense of, of maturity, which is actually pride and cluelessness mm-hmm. in some ways. Uh, as I experience, or as I say that about my experience, uh, is that true in your experience or how might you speak to that? I think so. And I, I think there's always the temptation we feel to move the goalposts so that we can maintain that sense of sort of pride mm-hmm. or at least relative achievement and I think different communities and persons are probably inclined to move the goalposts in different ways to sort of shrink and narrow what God cares about. And First Corinthians is a great text for reminding you of the wholeness that God wants for us, the way the gospel changes everything and new life really does creep into every nook and cranny of our lives. So, I mean, some of us shrink it to... Um, you know, the new life's about having right doctrine. And so churches are healthy when they have good confessions or right doctrine. First Corinthians tells us bad doctrine kills. It's absolutely essential. And we live in an anti-intellectual age, so we probably need to hear that in a heavy way. But it also tells us that lovelessness and discord and rancor, uh, that kind of relational breakdown, that, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. Love matters. Unity matters. Peace matters. Um, And so we need to care about that equally. Um, It tells us that mission matters, the way in which we think about our lives, our resources, our opportunities, our gifts as not our own, even our bodies as not our own, but having a deeper purpose in God's mission. Uh, And that matters too. So uh, different communities can sort of narrow things. Are we we on mission? Are we loving? Are we living uh, the right confession and doctrine? And 1 Corinthians won't let us rest simply with any one of them. It calls us to the fact that God wants to transform all of those things. Yeah. Um, and I, I find that cuts right against the grain of my own inclinations and, you know, so many Christian communities. Yeah, that makes sense. And it also enlightens maybe the, the nature of the letter as Paul hits on clearly things that were an issue in, in Corinth, but... But it can it is sort of diverse in terms of what he's talking about uh, and what he keeps addressing and I think it is it does speak to that nature of the the pervasive effects of the gospel as it gets in it, it shapes that oh yeah that too and this and this over here and so you really it keeps us from narrowing the scope of what God cares about and what we ought to care about in a way that's quite uncomfortable and always challenging yeah 
And, and even more so when you remember that Second Corinthians follows, and there are even more issues as things have developed further. So it, it is a reminder that God wants wholeness. Um, you know, in in Deuteronomy, we read famously that you know the God of Israel is one; He's the only God. He's not a niche God who provides in certain areas. He provides every blessing. Therefore, you love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Jesus will explain. Um, first Corinthians and, and second Corinthians too help explain something of that with every element of your life. What does it look like to live that new life as a individual, as a community, as a family, as a neighborhood? Um, and so that keeps expanding our, our notion of what does resurrection life look like? Yeah, um, that's good. As you have read First Corinthians, are there any significant words or phrases throughout the letter that uh, you think are important to point out? It's not a book that has like recurring phrases that sort of shape the structure exactly. Um, it, it reads like a letter that hits a variety of points. It, it starts and stops with obvious letter-like format. Um, and then the vocabulary and the phrasing really suits each of the subjects. Mm. Um, there are themes that do run through, uh, constant reference to the Spirit and to the Lord especially. Um, but by and large, it, it's a letter that in each section of a chapter or two, or in a couple cases, three chapters, um, will address some matter and use the vocabulary and the phrases that particularly suit that topic. So it is more varied. There's just not as much kind of recurring vocab through the whole thing. Yeah. There's a phrase that I have increasingly paid attention to, and Paul will ask the question, especially early on, do you not know? And and as I keep reading that phrase, the thought that comes to my mind is, I don't think they know, Paul, or, right. or they do and don't care. I'm not sure right. which one it is. But, uh, but that is a phrase that seems to be well-placed, and, and every time I, I read it, uh, there's there's both invitation and challenge, and Paul seems to be uniquely good at that as an apostle and pastor to invite people and challenge them at the same time, given who they are and what's going on and, right. and what he expects of them. So there, there's mercy, there's grace, there's instruction, exhortation, but there's also um, um, a fatherly pastoral uh, rebuke, sometimes gentler and other times more straightforward. But there's so much in that phrase to me, do you not know? Um, and, and I think that tone matters, like how we imagine him saying that. And, and uh, I increasingly, as I sit in Paul's letters more and more, and the Spirit um, gives me insight and, and teaches me through his writings, I hear Paul as increasingly the tone of a pastor, mm -hmm. the tone of, uh, of one who, who's given his life, his prayer, his emotional energy, he's given him his whole self um, because of his calling to these people. And I think that matters when we read phrases like that. We often think the letter teaches us by the material it talks about. How does the way Paul draws that out, how does that teach us by way of modeling how we could talk to each other? What, what does that make you think in that regard? Maybe especially where we struggle doing so. Yeah, I think it's <clears throat> a good question. Um, there's a deep, when I read Paul, and I imagine that question, there seems to be a deep sense of Paul understanding who he is before God and uh, as a fellow brother, but also as an apostle. So I think all of us have 
roles in people's lives, but our primary role is as a child of God, as one who's wholly dependent upon um, the love of the Father, um, in union with Christ, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's our primary calling. So I increasingly see Paul, that's Paul's only hope. And But then there is a there he is implicated now as a, a brother in Christ and an apostle so as i watch him pastorally or as i imagine and uh, experience him pastorally in his letters then um, he there's great pain often in what he knows is truth and love at mm-hmm. the same time and yet he doesn't seem to shirk away from it even when he's accused of it it sounds like sometimes he's accused of of uh, being a little too big for his britches and writing, but not so much in person. But, but I've learned to to trust Paul over time, um, as inspired and not as a perfect man, but as one who's embracing his calling first, as I said, as a child of God, and then as an apostle. And so, it, it, what it does is it instructs me. I want to follow Paul in my discipleship that way, with my kids, with my friends, um, as a pastor, um, but also as a person who can be salt and light in the world to those who don't believe uh, in ways that that I uh, cannot create an us-them, but rather it's uh, it's an invitation to, to follow Christ as I follow Christ. So I think those are the, those are the ways in which I would expound upon um, my growing awareness of maybe what Paul's tone actually is. Right. Yeah, I, I am struck. I, I think this connects with that, that it begins maybe shockingly by calling them saints. That's not a title he just reserves for himself, but he includes Mm. them. And it ends not just by calling for God to bless them with grace, but also then with saying that Paul's love might be with them. Mm. And that notion of him being implicated or drawn in and connected to them, that they're included together in his love, that actually stands out. That's not something he always says. Mm, um, and here of all places, he talks about at the end of all that laundry list and all that frank, candid conversation and calling them on this, that, and the other, uh, he concludes with that pledge of love. Mm. And it seems to me that is not just an example of lots of things we should care about, but modeling the way we ought to care for people. Yeah. Um, I think you're exactly right there. That's really good. It it reminds me of an author who asks a question, can you know the world and still love the world? Mm. And it's a question that is is so important. And I find myself asking the different versions of that question. And so I think maybe we could say, do you, can you know the church and still love the church? Can you know your brothers and sisters in Christ, not in general, but in specifics, and still, and still love them? And I think that's a very important and powerful question, and it's, it has to be related to, um, to the way Paul, or I should say the way that Paul talks about love in 1 Corinthians, the way he models it in his life, the way he calls people to it. Uh, Paul would be able to answer yes to that question. Uh, I do know the church. I do know the churches. I do know the world. And yes, I still love it. It's worth giving myself to. But that's a question we face every day in so many small and big ways. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of something uh, the philosopher Cornell West has said that, you know, it's one thing to say that people around you in your culture have problems. It's another thing to admit that they are suffering catastrophe, that the problems 
aren't just inconveniences. So-and-so frustrated me. Uh, they got in my way. They disappointed me. But rather that they're catastrophic. They they don't jive with the way reality is and that life together should be. And then the challenge when you acknowledge that there's just catastrophic major problems that, that the Bible calls sin and death, um, can you love that? Mm, that's and can right. you lean in in a way that, that seeks the betterment of that? Or do you do you just snidely turn? Yeah. Um, and you know, you can see the Corinthians are struggling with that in all sorts of ways, particularly in Second Corinthians, you'll have greater factions that have mm-hmm. arisen. Uh, but even here, you know, there's already that danger of, you know, the, the rich turning away from the poor we hear yeah. in worship. Mm-hmm. And Paul's got no time for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that kind of sense of being in this together, being a body being a, a group of people who are meant to function well together by living and, and loving one another in a certain way is modeled in such a profound way. Yeah, that's good. So in First Corinthians particularly, are there any texts that are often um, mentioned in any specific doctrines that, are, that may be unique uh, ex- explorations or at least signposts to certain doctrines? Yeah, I mean... Uh, Three immediately jump to mind as kind of big sections that you go to if you want to explore different topics. So, I mean, the end of chapter one and chapter two, if you want to know what the Holy Spirit does changing us within, it's one of the classic passages for describing how the Spirit helps us understand the wisdom of the Lord and of the cross. Uh, if you want to understand what it means to catch the revolution of sexual ethics in the early uh, Christian world, which is just radically different from the way others are living sexually, then chapters five to seven are the single most important passage in the New Testament. Um, and then if you want to understand why the resurrection is so important, it's explained and exposited in chapter 15 more than anywhere else. I mean, it's it's woven through the whole New Testament, but the logic, the the sort of power uh, that it has in making everything else about Christianity reasonable and attractive is explained there. And the folly of Christianity apart from resurrecting power is, is really frankly exposed. So those would be three areas that are absolutely pivotal for understanding really big ideas of what it means to walk in the way of Christ and to trust the gospel. That's great. Now, this just strikes me now. One of the most famous passages in the Bible, not the most, but one of the most would be 1 Corinthians 13. It's read in lots of contexts, maybe particularly weddings. So can you take a minute or two to describe its function in the letter? I mean, it's it's a beautiful refrigerator verse or passage yeah. and, and wedding. It really is beautiful. But Maybe you can place it for us and uh, its purpose in the letter. Yeah. So, I mean, it celebrates love. Love is patient, kind, and so forth. And it describes exactly the opposite of the loveless life or community, right? If I have this, but I have not love, I'm this. If I have that, but I have not love, I'm that, you know. So it describes, on the one hand, the dark kind of community uh, that's just... Uh, really fractured and fissured where people aren't living that life of a body that's seeking sort of mutual betterment and happiness because they lack love. And then it describes this just illumined sort of existence where people are loving and it leads to these kind of characteristics or what we might call virtues, habits of, of, of behavior over time. 
uh, like patience and kindness. And, and I think Paul's bringing it up there because he's been hitting some pretty hard issues um, mm-hmm. about how do you worship? How do you live as a community with the haves and the have-nots? How do you think about uh, sexual ethics, not just how you use your body, but also how sex is a public thing? It's got relational consequence for mm-hmm. the community. Mm-hmm. So how do you encourage and even exhort one another in that regard? Um, he's hitting some major bullet points. And then he sort of backs up and he says, now, you know, in addressing all these things and in seeking to be this moral body that uh, builds itself up uh, in God's grace, um, you have to do that out of love. Yeah. You know, otherwise, it, it will be the resounding gong and the clanging cymbal. Uh, it, will, it will not have effect. Um, and so it's just this remarkable... Uh, celebration positively, and it's this remarkable uh, warning negatively of how love is really a linchpin mm. um, for helping us understand, you know, how the community is going to grow yeah. um, in the way of Christ. Yeah, you know, and hearing it that way, it really does prohibit any sentimentalizing mm. of what love does and what it is and what it requires. When you understand that these people are really angry with each other, they're really at odds. They've really hurt one another and they are living lives that are unchristian. And, uh, and Paul has to remind them of what love is and it's beautiful the way he does it. Yeah. Uh, but it just strikes me that when you, when you remove it from its context, it is much easier to sentimentalize love and what Paul and what Paul's describing. Yeah. And that the first description of love in chapter one tells us just frankly, love always involves death. It may not always involve a cross in the sense of physical expiration and death, but if you're really loving others, it means denying, it means giving up, it means renouncing, whatever it is, anger, embitterment, your own way and preference. And so that kind of life of a community, Paul's own leadership uh, is all about renouncing one's own claims, one's own scorecard, mm. one's own designs. Uh, love always involves sacrifice. And, and we know that because the definition of it given is the cross. Um, and so, yeah, sentimentality is, is just the first thing that's got to go. Yeah. You know, it, it always involves somehow um, putting to death the way we would have things be mm. and living in the way God would have us to walk together. Yeah. And I never would put this together. You're right. He does say that about love and what it requires at the beginning. And if, and knowing that it almost can then be a thread or at least it's present. He may not bring it up, but it's present throughout in all types of ways. The, the ways we've already talked about, the way we understand our gifts and the purpose of our gifts, the way that what we expect of our leaders and pastors and, yeah. and how we view them and how we ought not to view them uh, and what we should expect of them. That theme of, of love requiring a certain type of death um, informs it informs the rest of the letter in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Even Paul's model, which we've talked about already, you know, Paul's an apostle. Paul's got enough problems. He, he goes to prison. He ship. I mean, all sorts of things. Uh, the way in which he addresses what he has to address here, he, I'm sure he'd love to be preaching to or writing to people other than when suffering these things. Mm. But love for a leader involves being the first to give up your preference. Yeah. And dealing with who's actually in front of you, their real needs, and, and how you can seek their betterment. So it is a great example, even of leaders, and how 
uh, service and power have to be shaped by love mm-hmm. or else it just goes tyrannical and you use people. Yeah. Um, and so Paul models that too. I, I think you're right. It, it sort of bookends and frames kind of the whole thing yeah. in all sorts of ways. Mm. All right. So last thing here, what's your favorite part of first Corinthians or a favorite part that comes to mind? Yeah. Two things come to mind. I mean, one is just the idea that Jesus is the wisdom from God, which just, positively is such a promise to me when I feel as though I lack wisdom or worse that my wisdom isn't working. And, and so that's a remarkable promise there in first Corinthians one thirty that God has and gives a wisdom that's going to exceed my own and provide life and, 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 and shape my story. Uh, the second would be, and this would be more of a, a challenge in addressing sex uh, in our bodily life in chapters five to seven, you know, it talks about problems and case studies, but then it gives principles underneath them. And at the end there in chapter six, it says your body's for the Lord in verse 13. And then in verse 15, it says your bodies are members of Christ. And then in verses 19 and 20, it says you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. And it seems to me that that's just one of the starkest reminders of how even what might be the basest sort of lowest kind of aspect of what we think of our our body, which can be so frustrating, so impulsive, so passionate, uh, Christ bought that too. Uh, It gives it dignity, but it also remarkably challenges how we think about our identity, our being, our nature, our purpose. And, and there's no end to what Christ can ask because he bought it with a price with himself. And it, it seems to me that's just a, a principle that is so searching. There, there's no end to how that pierces our own, my own desire to have my own way yeah. and to come with my own dreams and plans. Mm. Uh, so you're bought with a price, so glorify God with your body is, is just upending in all sorts of ways.